Welcome to part three, the analysis. For Columbus police, when there's a major crime scene, the crime scene search unit processes that scene. They photograph and collect the evidence, as well as taking measurements if applicable. Everything is logged and recorded. Any evidence collected is noted and will be submitted to the Columbus Police Property Room. Remember, this was 1982 and DNA wasn't being analyzed and used like it is today. Fingerprints, or latents, what police call them, were being collected and analyzed at the time, but DNA was just being explored and wasn't used in forensics until 1986. A quick internet search of the history of fingerprints shows that the first time a fingerprint was used to solve a crime was in Argentina in 1892. Subsequently, in 1924, the FBI created the fingerprint file, where fingerprint cards were stored. So while latents were widely being used in 1982, the year that Kelly was abducted and murdered, DNA was not stored or analyzed. It wasn't until 1990 that the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS, was created by the FBI. Then the DNA Identification Act of 1994 was passed and the FBI began to store DNA profiles. So what you want is the DNA, but the DNA is all in the nucleus of the cell and then you have this, the uh, membrane as well. So you want to get those cells to break open so that the DNA gets released. Oh, okay. And that's what this does. Oh, okay. wow. I'm Lindsay Simon. I'm a forensic scientist at the Columbus Police Crime Laboratory. So basically, DNA is your genetic blueprint. So you get half from your mother, half from your father, and it's what determines your physical characteristics. And what's great about DNA is it's unique to each individual, um, excluding identical twins. So a lot of times that DNA will be left behind at a crime scene, and it'll be collected and turned into us to process for DNA. And we can get a what we call a DNA profile, and then that'll be unique to that individual. CODIS contains DNA profiles from all 50 states and from the District of Columbia. States have different rules on when DNA can be collected, but if the state is allowed to, they will take DNA from convicted offenders and arrestees of felony offenses. Currently, CODIS does not perform familial searches. This is a quote from the FBI's fact sheet on CODIS. Familial searching is an intentional or deliberate search of the database conducted after a routine search for the purpose of potentially identifying close biological relatives of the unknown forensic sample associated with the crime scene profile. Currently, CODIS does not conduct familial searches, but states can do so. Lindsay Simon explains a little bit more about CODIS. So CODIS is basically three levels. So we have a local level, which is just our laboratory, a state level, which includes all the laboratories in our state, Ohio, and then also a national level, which includes all the states and any country also that's participating in uh, CODIS as well. So when we enter a profile, it gets searched in our local database. And then if there's no hits, it'll get uploaded and searched into the state database. And again, if there's no hits, it'll go to the national and be searched at the national level. CODIS actually has certain eligibility requirements. You can't just put any profile you want in there. You have to have you have to meet those eligibility requirements in order to upload it into their database. And they're very strict about that. Some of those include like they have to come from a crime scene. So they have to be associated with the crime and they have to come from a potential suspect. So you can't put victims, you can't put consensual partners, and you can't put elimination standards in. So this is our CODIS workstation here. 
So this is basically what we look at, and this is the kind of the main software that we use to do entering the profiles to check map potential matches. So Specimen Manager will basically load all of the profiles that are in the system. We have a match manager, so if we we don't have any right now, but if we did potential matches, they would show up here. The software is lenient enough that sometimes you'll get ones that aren't true matches. Yep. So we have a local search that we do whenever we enter profiles in. Before we can upload them to the state level, we have to search them within our own database to make sure we don't have any matches locally. If we don't, then those can be searched and possibly matched to an offender in the state database. If there's no matches there, then we go to the national level to see if there's any nationally. So this is basically what they would look like. So we would have an ID number, we would know which agency it's hitting with, so it's, what you would do is you, if it looks like a good match, you would disposition it as a hit, you would write a letter up, and you would contact the laboratory that has that offender name and request that they send you that information. So what that state lab will do is that they will confirm it. So they rerun the sample to make sure that there wasn't any kind of mix-up, just to make sure that they're giving you the right information. If they, you know, that confirmation is good, then they will write a letter up themselves with all of his information that they have. They send that letter to us, and then we write a report, called a CODIS match report, with that information to send to the detective. So he has that information. Now that's constantly searching yes. now. Okay. Yeah. So once um, you enter it in, it's continuously going, mm -hmm. and does it alert you if there's that match eventually? Yep, it'll show up on this page here. It'll be matches not viewed, so ones that are new, it'll be in red, so you'll definitely see it. Um, and then that's when you kind of look and see, okay, is this a good match, or does this not look like a good match? match Sometimes you get hits to really old samples, which is po still possible for Kelly. I mean, it could be that if he's still alive and he did something and had a reference standard collected to be put in the database, it doesn't even have to be in Ohio, it could be anywhere in the country, and it gets uploaded, it'll hit to that evidence profile. The process is really extensive and involves a lot of review, which is so important for accuracy. The lab is very thorough in their process, which is vital to investigations in being able to use the DNA results. Relating all of this to Kelly's case, even though DNA was not being analyzed in 1982, the crime scene detectives took great care in preserving the evidence they collected, evidence that is being used in the investigation today. They were able to preserve DNA belonging to the suspect, which has been tested against multiple suspects throughout the years and used to definitively rule out a number of the suspects. Sometimes, detectives develop a suspect profile to help determine who might have perpetrated a crime. We talked to Kristen Cadu, a behavioral analyst from the FBI, to get some ideas about a suspect profile for cases like Kelly's. My name is Kristen Cadu. I'm an agent with the FBI, and I work in the Cincinnati Division. I've been an agent for a little over 20 years. We have a behavioral analysis unit that is out of Quantico, Virginia, and they are full-time behavioral analysis coordinators, and we work uh, in the field to assist local police departments with their, their cases and help with uh, threat assessments and behavioral assessments within their investigations. The FBI's behavioral analysis unit will look at 
the whole gamut of an investigation and look at each individual person and some behavioral characteristics about them and try to mold that into how that affects an investigation. There's lots of different ways personalities play into whether you think someone is involved or not involved or helping a, a witness come forward a little bit more and be more comfortable talking about something, all different kinds of ways to, to help with the investigation. We hope to get involved on a behavioral uh, point of view right from the beginning and uh, look at the potential suspects that people have in an investigation, try to focus on their background and look at some of their things that they're involved in, as well as the victim. Uh, we look, want to look very strongly at the behavior of the victim and the things that have been going on with a victim before they became a victim. And oftentimes that can help with the storyline of the behavior that's surrounding the investigation. One thing that we see with these offenders, we tend to put them into two different kind of categories, one being either a preferential offender or a situational offender, and I'll explain the two. Preferential offender would be one that tends to look at a specific girl, have a type of girl, age, size, things like that, and they, they are planning it more and looking towards that. A situational offender is one that does not necessarily, necessarily have a type. The girl that's walking by them is the convenient girl, and it's not necessarily as planned. And the majority of these child abduction murder cases are actually done by what we think are more situational offenders, because these guys aren't necessarily as, as organized as you may think. It's very common for the situational offenders to leave the body near the side of a road. Um, most of the, the children that are found murdered are found very easily on the side of the road with their things around them. So it really is hard to say other than he did want it to be found sooner rather than later as well. And I think that probably leads to also his thought that his confidence that he wouldn't be connected to it as well. And, and again, sometimes in these cases, oftentimes the person is more of a stranger or an acquaintance, not necessarily someone very close to the girl, which gives him more of a confidence that you're not going to figure out who he is. And when I say acquaintance, I kind of define that by someone that's in the neighborhood that she runs into, but she wouldn't necessarily recognize herself. He would remember her, but she wouldn't remember him. A clerk at the grocery store, somebody in the neighborhood that just kind of hangs out there, that would be more of an acquaintance. So it wouldn't be somebody that would be automatically connected to, uh, to her. It's unfortunate how many kids are easily manipulated into a vehicle. And as much as we as, as parents try to tell them, not, you know, not to do that, it still happens a lot. Again, especially because if he was acquaint an acquaintance, somebody that she may have seen in the neighborhood or assumed was someone from the neighborhood, uh, and he presented himself that way, certainly she would feel more comfortable getting into a car that way. When you have a case like this, I would really focus on not just the actual crime scene, which is obviously very, very important, but the victimology, meaning the information about the victim, because oftentimes you can find out a lot about, you know, who possibly could have done this through the actions of the victim pri just prior to being taken. And that's not to say that they did anything wrong. Uh, it's just to say, what were they doing? Where were they walking? Who were they talking to? Who did they normally chat with in the neighborhood? Um, was it 
common for them to go to the, the local store by themselves or um, just with other friends, that kind of thing. So looking at um, the history of the victim can really give you a good picture of people to start looking at and talking to as well. So we would definitely look at that kind of thing. One interesting thing about research we've done about child abductors and murderers is that most of them do have a criminal history. However, the criminal history does not involve sexual assault of any kind. So you'll find someone that has other felonies, other kinds of, it might be break-ins, thefts, things like that, other types of felonies, but not necessarily a sexual assault in their history. And oftentimes when we figure out who they are, they're not already registered sex offenders. So it's something that you want to keep an open mind to and don't just assume, oh, well, this person's never been in trouble for any sexual issues, so it couldn't be him. We find the majority of the time they actually, this is one of, you know, one of the first times they've done this, and it was a progression of their criminal activity. It's important to note that the behavioral analysis is always helpful, but again, it may not ultimately describe the actual suspect or their motivation. I wanted to make sure that we played the clip where Special Agent Cadu discusses some behaviors often seen from suspects after the fact, in case this rings a bell with any of our listeners. One of the things that I think is very important for people that are listening to try to look at is that oftentimes we're all unwitting witnesses to things. We don't realize at the time that we're seeing something that's important. So I'd like to go over some behaviors that are pretty much what you consider a post-offense behaviors. So you have a subject that's committed this crime and some things that they tend to do soon after they commit the crime that, again, as a, as a neighbor or a friend or coworker or family member, you wouldn't have noticed right away. But if I describe them, maybe you'll think back about it and some of this stuff might sound familiar. So I'll just kind of go through kind of a list of some descriptors that are common for post-behavior of some uh, of these uh, offenders. One thing is oftentimes uh, the offender does tend to abduct within their own race. And Kelly was a white female, so it's just something to keep in mind. Often there are some sort of stressor in the offender's life prior to the abduction. It could be several stressors or it could just be one main stressor. It could be a divorce or a loss of job or just a frustration, but something that's kind of catapulted them into feeling like now I'm going to go forward with whatever fantasies I've been thinking about. And as I said, most of these um, child abductions are, the offenders are more situational. They're not as much planned. They're more opportunistic with this. So they, it's kind of whoever kind of comes into their path. But it's just kind of important to know that. When you think of a situational offender and their behavior, those people tend to be the people that are more socially inept. So this is an individual who has a harder time dating women his own age doesn't mean that he won't necessarily be dating women his own age, but has a harder time with it. So feels more comfortable with someone that's more immature, uh, more vulnerable to their ways of talking and things like that. The preferential offender that I mentioned, they tend to be more socially good. They're apt in what they're doing. They're easier within society. And again, with, with the people, the, the research that we've seen, most of the sexual offenders that are uh, that abduct and murder tend to be more situational. So the ones that tend to be a little um, less savvy on the social realm of things. So immediately following the incident, office, oftentimes the offender will miss work or school. They'll be absent, uh, and it'll be either sudden or unplanned. 
The offender may either be a no-show or may offer plausible excuse such as an illness, death in the family, or car trouble. The offender may miss scheduled appointments or commitments. They may include things like a medical appointment or a commitment with a friend. So right after this, they're kind of, you know, missing things, uh, not showing up kind of thing. They may suddenly leave town, either with no explanation or some plausible reason, but they'll leave, home, leave town. Um, changes in the offender's usual consumption of alcohol or drugs right after this. The change in their appearance or discard alt or alter belongings that could identify them. They could do things like changing the color of their hair, cutting their hair, shaving facial hair, discarding any clothing uh, worn during the offense, or changing the appearance or, of or discarding their vehicle. They may also exhibit an interest in the status of the investigation. They may either say that they really want to hear about it, or conversely, they might tell people that they want to you know, turn that off. We don't want to, I don't want to hear that. And also changing their, their personality a little bit, displays of anxiety, nervousness, or irritability. They may withdraw from norm, normal activities. Now, I know this case is a long time ago, um, so it might be hard to remember because we're talking about this kind of thing happening within days, weeks, and months of it happening. But you never know. Somebody can think back about a, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker. Because, again, with, some of the, with this type of situation, most of the time the offender is someone that does live locally and someone that most people know. That's why the neighborhood canvas can be so uh, important in these kind of cases, too. This information isn't surprising, but it is something that might stand out to those of you listening, even though it happened nearly 40 years ago. Please join us next time where we will discuss where the case stands today and speak with the detective in charge of the case, Detective Croom.